0: What about the weirdest experience you've had on the campaign trail so far?
1: I received a text message from uh, a gentleman who had installed my natural gas line uh, last fall. And he was just kind of reaching out and inquiring about uh, road safety and ways that we can make Toronto's streets safer. Uh, and it was at that point that I realized, in fact, my natural gas installer was running for city council and he was my neighbor. So we live around the corner from each other, we're sharing ideas, um, talking about the issues and uh, and running against each other. So that was, a, that was a fun
0: surprise. A small world and we definitely don't want him to win or you won't have natural gas. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, this is Craig Applegath and this is the 21st Century Imperative podcast the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st century imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant, helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? In this podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing Brad Bradford. Brad is an urban planner, community activist, and is now a candidate for Toronto City Council in Ward 37. I first met Brad in 2011 at a conference he had organized when he was the president of the Canadian Association of Planning Students. I was speaking at the conference about building urban resilience in the face of climate change impacts, and I distinctly remember being very impressed by Brad when I first met him. I was especially impressed by his keen awareness of the planning issues associated with climate change, as well as the complex realities of trying to address these issues. In the years since meeting Brad, I've had the opportunity to work with Brad on a number of projects and workshops related to planning more resilient, sustainable cities, and I continue to admire his energy and commitment to improving our city's ability to address the causes and future impacts of climate change. Until leaving the planning department at the City of Toronto to run for city council, Brad was responsible for stakeholder engagement and special projects in the office of the chief planner, where he spent his time working with government, private sector, nonprofits, and community groups to broaden discussions around the kind of city Toronto wants to be. Brad is passionate about the interconnected issues of inclusivity, affordability, transit and the environment. Through his role at the city and as a future city councillor, Brad is working to diversify voices in our decision making and bringing more people to the table to discuss city building issues. In 2016, Brad won the Canadian Institute of Planners President's Award for his work on the Future Forward Task Force. In 2018, Brad was made a Civic Action Diversity Fellow. An avid cyclist, Brad also launched the Toronto Hustle Project in 2017 to develop the next generation of Canadian athletes while providing a platform for active transportation advocacy across North America. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Brad, great to have you as a guest on the 21st Century Imperative Podcast. I realize you're right in the middle of your campaign for a seat on Toronto City Council, Ward 37, so I really appreciate you giving up your time to do this interview. So why don't we start by asking you to tell us the story of how you decided to become a planner. When did you first know you wanted to be an urban planner and what drew you to planning?
1: I think for me, it was uh, cities have always fascinated me. I grew up in a suburban environment, suburban context, which for a lot of Canadians is not a foreign experience. But I moved to Toronto for my undergrad, and you're riding the subway downtown. I was at York University, and that was like multimodal. You were taking bus, you were taking the subway, and you get downtown, you're riding the streetcar. So the transit aspect and the public transportation was something that I didn't have in the suburbs, and I thought that was really cool. And I started looking into different agencies and people that were writing reports and there was so much great work coming out of the nonprofit sector at that point I ended up applying for an internship at the Canadian Urban Institute at that time and uh, was fortunate enough to get taken on and accepted there. And they put me to work on a bunch of different issues uh, around renewable energy, uh, around shadow population studies, around local municipal government models. And all of that stuff sort of really cemented the idea that I didn't know how it was going to make a difference or what exactly I was going to study, but I knew I wanted it to focus
0: around cities. Was there anyone that particularly inspired you at the time? Uh, any? ideas or individuals that really inspired you? Yeah, the the
1: gentleman that I was working with at the Canadian Urban Institute was named Brent Gilmore. And he's somebody who I've actually stayed in touch with over the past 15 years um, and kind of followed through my career and, and done work in the renewable energy and community energy planning space, because that's what he was really working on. And he went on to found a organization called Quest, Quality Urban Energy Systems of Tomorrow. And they've been involved in developing smart energy communities across the country. And I think that's, you know, we'll probably talk more about climate change, but I certainly think that cities are really the opportunity for us to move the needle on climate and carbon emissions. And uh, Brent was always a leader of that and somebody I really looked up to.
0: What about now, um, who most inspires you now? Who are some of the key thinkers on sustainability, sustainable cities, progressive politics? who you most admire and why I think
1: right now I mean certainly certainly the people i 've worked with at city hall there 's a lot of great civil servants there 's a lot of professionals who are who have dedicated themselves to public service, and they see the city of Toronto the fourth largest city in North America, 3 million people, as an opportunity to, I think, make change at scale. And so people involved in the Transport to climate change strategy, people involved in doing all the important transit work that's going to get people out of cars or give them other options. There's a lot of leadership at City Hall and there's a lot of leadership outside of City Hall. Organizations that have taken up that cause perhaps can have a you know, a different angle, maybe a more political angle and build momentum and coalitions around these issues.
0: That's actually a nice segue to my next question. City councils have huge opportunities to make significant positive impacts in addressing the environmental and social challenges we now face. And yet, so many people are cynical about politics and politicians, let alone being willing to step into the political arena themselves. So I think our listeners would be very interested to hear why you decided to take the big step of running for municipal office.
1: That's, uh, believe it or not, a question I get very often, uh, pretty much every day at the door. I've been at City Hall for three years in the chief planner's office as an urban planner. And what I found was the type of politics we had at City Hall was, uh, you know, kind of a negative type of politics, a partisan type of politics, a lot of self-service instead of community service. And I think for any professional or or anyone who's just concerned with the well-being of Toronto, um, this is not the best that our city could be. And when we look at issues of transportation, affordable housing, childcare, all of these sort of pressing, really serious challenges that we're wrestling with in Toronto, it's It's frustrating for me, and I think it's frustrating for a lot of Torontonians when those things get bogged down in ideology or partisanship or people who are more concerned about getting reelected rather than doing the right thing. So I decided that I was going to stop kind of complaining about these things and actually put up my hand and try and make a positive contribution in the city and a positive contribution in my community and run for local office.
0: So what do you most want to accomplish when you're elected? And where does dealing with the environment and climate change fit into that?
1: The environment and climate change has to be at the top of the agenda. And as a planner, there's a number of different ways that we can address that. And as a local government, uh, local government has a huge role to play in the climate agenda. We all know that an urban form and living in the city is the most sustainable way that we can really exist on this planet and certainly doing density and doing density well mitigates or reduces our environmental footprint. But local government touches that in so many different ways, Uh, from the way we live, the way we build, the way we do transportation and mobility in the city. All of these are avenues where we can move forward on the climate change front. And I think that You need a local government that's not just thinking about the next four years, but thinking about the next 40 years, the next 100 years, and the decisions that we can make today that will put us in a better position for tomorrow.
0: So what do you think is the most important role for city councilors to help move us in the direction of sustainable cities? What can you and your colleagues do to move us in that direction? Specifically in Toronto, we have been moving forward with the
1: Transform Tivo climate change uh, strategy, and that touches a, a lot of different things. It talks about the way that we produce and consume energy in the city, moving towards more renewable options. It talks about our building construction, It talks about resiliency and backup power. All of that stuff is integrated into that plan. We've now funded it and we're moving forward. At the end of the day, we prioritize things through the budget process. And so uh, people often say, like, show me your budget and I'll show you what your priorities are. And I think certainly when it comes to the environment, when it comes to climate change, we need to make financial commitments uh, and commitments with corporate and uh, governmental leadership to actually adopt and, and walk the talk, like actually implement the programs that we're talking about with our corporate fleets, with our buildings, Uh, with our transportation grid, all of these things uh, we can do better. We know we can do better. And I don't think that we need to spend any more time debating it or, or wasting time um, avoiding it. It's, these are things we have to move forward on.
0: When we talk about the notions of sustainability and sustainable cities, they seem to mean a lot of things to a lot of different people from where you stand. What are the most important things we have to do to create truly sustainable cities?
1: I think the idea of sustainability is something that can be quite cross-sectoral. So we think about it in an environmental sense. We think about it with respect to climate change and resilience. But we also need to think about it with respect to our uh, social challenges and our social infrastructure. And the idea that Toronto or any of our cities are a place where people can actually come as they are and have an opportunity for upward mobility. and I think that if we have a city um, that works, it has to be a city that works for our most vulnerable residents as well. It has to work for everybody.
0: Yeah, if you don't have a job, you're not gonna care about carbon. Right.
1: Empathy has to be part of our discussion. Like the notion of living in a city is the acceptance that there is a uh, set of shared values that we have as, as Torontonians, this set of shared values of people who live in the city. And, and part of that is empathy. Part of that is generosity, generosity with our time, generosity with our space. And we need to get back to those sort of shared values that unite and bring us together yeah. rather than focusing on the things that might be more polarizing or push us apart. That's what's hopeful and optimistic about cities is there's that sense that we're all in this together. And I think that you want planners and architects and engineers that really kind of embody those those values and look to design it and and build it in our cities.
0: What do you think are the big obstacles to getting city governments to understand and come to grips with how to meet the realities of climate change? Like it, it seems that, that climate change is sort of obvious now, and yet governments at all levels seem to have great difficulty in acting on it. What do we need to do to overcome those obstacles?
1: I think the big challenge with government is the nature that every four years, you got to put your name forward and try and get reelected again. And climate change, one of those sort of slow moving, abstract problems that doesn't necessarily confront you on a day to day, the way traffic jams do or not having your garbage picked up does. Like those are much more tangible, concrete issues that you that you wrestle with and and have to pick up the phone and, and talk to constituents about. But climate change is a little bit more abstract. So I think one of the most effective things we could do is actually have a government with term limits, you know, where you actually had eight years or two terms or whatever to to go into office and do community service and actually get
0: things done. Right. So that you may worry about it in your first term, but in your second term, you're doing it hopefully because you think it's going to improve the uh, environment and people's um, reality. Yeah. Like do
1: the right thing. Like that's what you were elected to do. Move forward on those priorities and you know make the decisions that are not necessarily the most popular decisions, but You know, the more responsible decisions that we're looking to local officials to make, but often the political nature of some of these things prevents them from actually moving forward on.
0: So something to put on your to-do list when you're at That's right. We're both well aware of the fact that urban density reduces per capita carbon emissions, um, CO2 emissions per capita, for example, in the core of Toronto, around 3.6 tonnes per year. Whereas emissions per capita in the suburbs surrounding the city is somewhere in the order of 13 to 16 tons per capita. So what are your thoughts on how dense we can make cities and still create humane and great places to live? Uh, Or put another way, how do we most effectively create livable dense cities?
1: This goes back for me to Toronto's story of amalgamation and I won't drone on about it, but you know, 20 years ago- We can
0: lock up another hour to do Sure, (laughs) yeah.
1: 20 years ago, we became a much bigger city. And during that time, there was a harmonization of our zoning bylaw and consolidation of our official plan. And one of the outcomes of that, and it came from negotiations with residents associations and, and a number of different stakeholders was this notion of stable neighborhoods. So the stable neighborhoods essentially uh, prohibit any sort of more generous intensification in roughly 75% of Toronto. So we've got 25% that is more available or open for development and 75% of it that isn't. Uh, Toronto's roughly 680 square kilometers, somewhere around there. And uh, that means that a lot of the land isn't available to do any sort of gentle density um, that you see in, in a lot of other cities around North America it presents a challenge for affordability. It presents a challenge for providing options for homes for people to live in. And it it certainly has skewed our real estate market uh, and really volatile real estate prices around our transit, where we have our transit infrastructure. So I think you need political leadership that will acknowledge, hey, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't think we were going to be bigger than Chicago. We didn't think we were going to be the fourth largest city in North America, and yet here we are. So how can we provide options where we can introduce some of that gentle density? We can introduce what people are calling you know, the missing middle. And for me, I think it's looking at our avenues, looking at our urban centers, but particularly those avenues where we are looking to direct the growth and then offering sort of a transitionary zone Immediately back from the avenues that might allow us to make mid rise uh, a little bit more practical by consolidating and assembling some of those sites. I also think that there's a lot of creative solutions that we're trying to move forward on laneway suites, secondary suites, duplexes, triplexes.
0: Hidden density.
1: Yeah. And, you know, these are, we know this is an urban form that works. Uh, You can point to, Dozens of other cities in North America that do this. We know it's that gentle density that uh, you know still it, it's not cavernous development. The shadow impacts aren't there, but it does provide more options, more affordable options for people to live in existing neighborhoods. And in Toronto's case, often close to transit. So that is all caught up in in a lot of challenges of the political palatability of that it's caught up in challenges of uh, development charges that you know we don't have a way to break down development charges for a three unit building, like a triplex. Right. Um, but if we're serious about moving forward on these things, these are the type of conversations that we have to have with residents. These are the type of conversations we have to have uh, with other politicians and people need to bring these ideas forward so that we can start unlocking a little bit of that missing middle in and across the city.
0: Yeah, and I would I would think that it requires not only unlocking that, but a vision of what that will look like or could look like when it's unlocked. And that sense of uh, is density look like Europe, where you have seven or eight stories, which would definitely provide enough density for light rail transit, right? Or more like Asia. Um, personally, I'm thinking somewhere in the order of. Uh, the seven to 10 stories yeah. uh, and, and, and denser blocks. But what, what do you think What in terms of urban form?
1: So I don't think it's a one size fits all. And I think we do density differently in different parts of the city and in a different context. So the city's mid rise guidelines for avenues in my view are very appropriate. And that's based on the right of way width of the street. And then you can kind of stand that upright and that's sort of the height that you can expect. I spent a number of years down in Boston and Throughout New England, you see a triple-decker form where you know these are three stories. Each floor is a separate unit. It's a still very much a neighborhood-oriented, walkable, um, very gentle density. It's a great way to have more families in a neighborhood, better use of infrastructure and resources, and more affordable options for people. So I definitely think that's something that would be appropriate in a lot of parts of Toronto. And then, of course where we're putting billions of dollars of transit in the ground and making those transit investments, it's going to be a higher density. You know, that's where we're going to start to see some of the towers that um, very much- Around
0: the nodes. Yeah, yeah, around the
1: nodes. And that makes sense as well. We want to put the people where we're making the transit investments, um, and I think you'll see that form also.
0: So density can do a lot of work in reducing CO2 emissions. What about opportunities for cities to deal with the fast emerging impacts of climate change? For example, more frequent and severe storm events and greater number of dangerous heat events. Are there important opportunities that we should be thinking about, especially since the city is now growing so rapidly?
1: I think the nature of cities can certainly exacerbate those impacts. And you just really kind of hit the nail on the head. We need to start thinking about these things. And 10 years ago, a decade ago, this is a conversation that we wouldn't have been having. But there's agencies and organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation, um, and certainly as an outcome of Sandy, they're driving these conversations. And now we're actually seeing it become a part of municipal government. So the city of Toronto has been working with Rockefeller Foundation. And now we have a chief resilience officer who's tasked with addressing um, these sort of challenges that are facing facing Toronto. I think we're also starting to see it play out in our infrastructure in a number of different ways. So the city of Toronto is working with all three levels of government to build Portland's flood protection. And that's an area that we saw just last summer. It was extremely vulnerable to uh, flooding. To, yeah, yeah, flooding. And yeah. that can be so disruptive to local businesses, to transit, to residents. And frankly, we saw that it it shut the city down for weeks. So you're going to have impacts that are localized to a particular area. You're gonna have impacts that that go across the city and and you know the region and and we see that with respect to power outages, brown outages. And that's why we're we're also starting to think of like backup power guidelines and trying to decentralize the grid infrastructure that we have for distributing energy.
0: yeah, no, I would think one of the things that we you would bring to council is, Um, A deep understanding of energy, certainly district energy from your background to district energy um, and an understanding. So um, that would be very worthwhile. What about opportunities for environmental repair and regeneration? Clearly just planning for resilience and adaptation are not sufficient. How can cities like Toronto contribute to repairing the environmental damage that has already been caused?
1: I think that we have a role to play in certainly being leaders on a climate change front, certainly being leaders on a resilience front and leaders in a regenerative capacity as well. So uh, sometimes industry takes the lead, but other times I think, Local government has to do that, and we were the first to come out and lead on our green roof bylaw uh, and doing that across the city, and that's now a requirement for all of our commercial projects, and you see that in residential buildings as well. Again, I don't think any of these things, you can point to one measure or one thing and say, well, that's a panacea, and that's going to solve climate change, or we're going to be a sustainable city because we do this. But I'm bringing forward a proposal for a bylaw to ban single-use plastics. Because, right. you know, those are things that a lot of people think are recyclable and there's challenges with the labeling on that stuff too, because many of them say they are, but we're not able to process that. So it means even if you put it in the recycling bin, it's going to end up in the landfill or it's going to end up in our waterways. So there's another opportunity for government to lead on that and bring a bylaw or bring a change that's going to, you know, regulate some of the materials that we're using to reduce environmental impact. So, I think there's a lot of things that locally we can do. We just have to start doing them.
0: What do you think is missing from the discussion of climate change? Are there any other questions or better questions we should be asking ourselves? Well, what's missing
1: from the conversation right now is we no longer have a ministry responsible for addressing climate change Um, in
0: Ontario. In Ontario. We have a new conservative government that's in denial.
1: Yeah, I mean, like they've certainly said, this is not something that we're going to be moving forward with, with respect to the cap and trade program that was here, uh, with respect to the federal government's directive for provinces to have a way to put a price on carbon. Uh, They've sort of said hands off, we're not about that. Uh, And, you know, I think for anyone that's listening to this podcast, or working in a city building space, that's very concerning. The idea of cap and trade was actually originally a conservative policy. And we have a government right now that is taking more time to consult on sex ed curriculum. Uh, they're taking more time to review uh, carting in the police service. And yet we are not taking any time to consult on uh, scrapping a cap and trade program that is Uh, regarded by scientists around the world as one of the most effective ways for government to move forward on climate change. Yeah,
0: I sometimes wonder if it may be affecting them and their families and their children in the future, but it's like not part of who we are. We can't talk about it. It's not what we do. It's not our brand. I mean, it's very cynical, I think, and and very dangerous, but it, it just... You you can't believe that they really believe that this is not important, or at least all of them. Yeah, I
1: think this gets to the issue of identity politics, uh, in in many respects and that sort of populist movement right now and like climate change or the notion of any sort of carbon pricing, that is not in that tribe. That is not part of that camp, and that is not part of the discussion. In fact, it's become part of the identity of being right. of that yeah. of yeah. that tribe, right. or of being of those sort of um that type of politics.
0: I, I think it's quite cynical. I really think that they know that climate change exists. They're not stupid people, at least not all of them. And yet it's not part of the tribe. It's not part of their brand. Therefore, they can't speak to it right, or, or act on it.
1: Or, or feel like there's a license there given to speak or act on these things. Um, I'm sure that This government will come forward with some sort of uh, language or direction around how they're going to address this problem, because uh, certainly it is something that even folks on the far right of things generally acknowledge uh, at this point today. Climate change is something that we need to discuss and work on. The
0: question is what you do about it. It's the approach. Whether or not you address it, yeah. Yeah. And who's missing from the discussion of climate change? Um, Are there any key voices we're missing? And if so, how do we get them to the table?
1: No, I love that question. It's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. We are, you know, in a position and in a field where we have the opportunity to think about and wrestle these big topics like climate change and resilience. But there's so many people out there that their questions and their challenges are much more fundamental, basic to -to day-to-day life, you know, and that's worrying about the next paycheck. That's worrying about picking, you know, children up from childcare, getting them to childcare and really straightforward challenges of day-to-day living. And it's not getting easier in our cities. Um, it's not getting easier in Toronto. For many people, it's getting harder. So it's really challenging to have a conversation about kind of abstract issues like climate change, even though it's extremely important when you're just worrying about you know, working your second job or making sure that your, your kids are getting to school. So I think that there's a lot of people that don't have an opportunity to think about this uh, for a variety of reasons but it's certainly something that impacts all of us.
0: So certainly the issue of inequity and and people having a job is gonna have uh, a potentially a real impact of us being able to deal with this problem. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. We face some pretty serious climate change challenges over the next 25 years. What scares you the most about the challenges we face?
1: I think human nature's propensity to kick it down the road and not take the action that's required today to address these challenges in 25 years. I mean, look at the political landscape at any level of government, and our pace on addressing this has been glacial. Like, we're, we know that there are things that we can do. We know that there's steps and actions that we can take today uh, and it's a long list of things that we could do and yet we're not doing them or if we are doing them you know it comes in political cycles um, it's very incremental and piecemeal it's half measured and the risk is that we don't do enough today to better position ourselves for tomorrow that's what worries me the most
0: yeah it's it's uh you remind me of a, a book i read not too long ago by Margaret Heffernan called Willful Blindness, and she explores our almost infinite capacity to deceive ourselves, to believe what we want to believe, no matter how at odds it is with reality. Um, I, I think I found this book truly chilling because it really made me wonder if we would actually be able to drive change through rational discourse. What are your thoughts on how we can overcome this willful blindness, this kicking it down the road? Can we? (laughs) I'm wondering. Yeah. (laughs) The impossible Um, question.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's a question about how do you get people to care? Yeah. And how do you get people in influence and in positions, you know, who can really have have an impact on these things? How do you get them to listen? And making sure that we're able to outline what's at stake for people is a big part of that discussion. So, We've seen traumatic events associated with weather. We've seen what happens when entire cities are wiped off the power grid uh, and left for days without infrastructure that's working. And as that unfortunately continues to intensify, and as that in, that continues to increase in frequency, I think that these conversations um, will rise to the top of our priorities. But you know, I don't think it's a positive thing that it has to get to that tipping point uh, before we take action. There's enough data, there's enough evidence out there that shows us we need to be moving forward on this right now. Uh, And yet it's still too easy to focus on the things that are going on day to day uh, at the expense of some of these challenges that, you know, maybe a bit further out.
0: One of the challenges that really worries me and I think is also a really good example of willful blindness is our lack of planning for climate change's projected future human toll. And what I mean by that is the UN is now forecasting that there will be 250 million climate refugees by 2050 at the current rate of climate change and and I suspect that's a conservative number. Um, Clearly this will be one of the most critical challenges the world will face in the future. What do you think could be the role of cities in addressing this challenge? I mean, ultimately a lot of people are gonna have to find themselves living there, but what, what can we do? What could Toronto do?
1: Well, Canada is a country that's uh, formed on immigration and that's, that's one of our strengths. That's one of the best things about us. And here in Toronto, we know that 51% of our residents were actually born outside of the country. So that's something that um, has made us competitive that's something that's made us successful, and I think that's something that will continue to make us successful. So certainly being a city where people can come and, and land here and make a contribution and have hope and optimism, that's, that's Toronto's role in that place. And I think that we've seen the benefits of that, and certainly you know, just demographically as a country, uh, we need to have more immigration. Right. And Toronto needs to be a place that's accepting and helpful and supportive of that.
0: Yeah. Doug Saunders' recent book, Maximum Canada, was a really good treatise on that. That he said we have been underpopulated for some time. We should be at around 100 million um, to have a stable economy, let alone you know, take care of refugees. So I think it certainly works economically as well. How optimistic are you about our ability to meet these challenges?
1: I think that when you look at a, a city like Toronto, uh, 3 million people, we certainly have a responsibility and more importantly, we have the capacity to tackle these large scale issues. It's always nice to have a provincial and federal partner that's on side, but you know we do have the ability here to forge our own path, build our own economy and, and take care of the people here in the city with respect to climate change and and moving ahead on that front i've always found and take any major issue that governments have tried to grapple with over time whether that's that's human rights or women's suffrage sometimes you want to be on the right side of a poll and sometimes you want to be on the right side of change and i think certainly when it comes to resiliency and climate change you know we want to be on the right side of history of that
0: what gives you hope for the future? What keeps you going when things are looking
1: dark? I think it's, uh, for me, it's, it's all the fantastic, smart, passionate, and thoughtful people I've met along the way. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with people who really care about doing the right thing and are principled and deeply committed to their planning values, If we can always take it back to a conversation about our planning values, I think that generally gives us a good sense of the direction that we need to go and the steps that we need to take to get there.
0: Uh, Changing gears a bit, I have a number of favourite questions I like to ask all my guests at the end of an interview. First question, what books related to sustainable urbanism uh, do you most often gift or recommend to people or any kind of books for that matter? I
1: think right now, based on my particular pursuits and passions at the moment here. Um, I often recommend people read, uh, David Axelrod's believer book, which was really about, uh, you know, his involvement with the Obama campaign in, uh, 2008 and, and to a lesser extent, 2012. And that's just a story of, um, you know, grassroots organizing and what you can do when you build a coalition and bring people together and organize around um, the notion of change. And obviously we know uh, everything that was caught up in that election and what that meant for the United States. But that story of people coming together and and pick your issue, whether it's affordable housing or transportation, active transportation infrastructure, whatever it is, bringing people together to be the change that they want to see.
0: So Brad, um, Are there any lessons you learned that are applicable to what you're seeing now on your own campaign?
1: I think politicians should do less talking and more listening. So I've been to... Good advice for podcasters (laughs) as well. (laughs) Yeah. I think people generally, um, people are a lot smarter than politicians give them credit. And you could show up to the door and have a conversation with someone and they know... They know their neighborhood. They know their community. They know where their pain points are. And you just have to listen to them. And uh, they will give you all the feedback that you need. So I've learned a lot from my neighbors. And uh, just going to the door and having those honest conversations um, has been very insightful. Um, And I think that... As a civil society, as a local government, and as a city, we would be further ahead if we uh, spent less time kind of yelling at each other, talking down to each
0: other, and more more time time listening. listening. Yeah, that is a very good lesson. Second question, if you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy in cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly reducing CO2 emissions, or helping cities adapt to climate change or helping cities repair environmental damage our species has already caused, what would it be and why?
1: I think the very nature of living in a city is one of the most impactful and profound things that we can do uh, to address climate change. And that gets back to the ability to uh, you know, use public transportation. As, as in
0: living in a city as opposed to the suburbs or yeah, you know, regional. Yeah.
1: yeah, like the more urban form we can take, you know, as Canadians in particular, uh, is so valuable and makes such a difference. It opens up so many opportunities for mass transit, active transportation, the congregations of jobs and economies, education institution, you know, really we're talking about complete communities. We need to build more complete communities. And when you have all of those things that are important to your life, um, you know, job, education, healthcare, amenities, childcare, groceries, when all of that's within walking distance, now we can have a conversation about really reducing our carbon impact. If you have to get it in a car and drive for 20 minutes or half an hour or an hour to get to where you need to go, that's a problem. And that's not going to move us further forward in reducing climate change. It just exacerbates the problem.
0: Yeah, I'd agree a hundred percent. I think dense livable city farm is one of the most powerful remedies against emissions of climate change. Third question, this is one of my favorites. If you were provided with a full-page spread in the Sunday New York Times that you could fill with any content you wanted, what would you do with it? What would you say? What graphic or images would you use? By the way, uh, given you're running for City Council in Toronto, you might want to change it to a full page in the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail. Take your pick.
1: I think my message at the moment is... uh, it be something around the power of community-led change. What's been most inspiring for me is kind of taking a look at Toronto from a different perspective um, and understanding how the changes that we want to see in our neighborhoods, the changes that we want to see in our community, they often come from our neighbors. And you don't always have to wait for government to do it. You don't have to look to the private sector to innovate. But there are hundreds and hundreds of people who have a very much a, a stake in the game on a local level who are bringing the changes that they want to see, whether that's a, you know, a farmer's market or a pop-up shops program, um, investing in community programming, fundraising for streetscaping, like a lot of good things are happening across the city. And uh, that sort of positive impact is often driven by the community members that live there. So empowering and inspiring people to be the change that they want to see, I think is a very powerful uh, and important message.
0: And finally, to wrap up, do you have anything to ask of listeners or do you have any advice to offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative?
1: I think all of these conversations can be uh, kind of weighty and heavy and you sort of sit back and say, man, like we're screwed. It's easy to feel that way, but it's not overly helpful. My advice would be, Look for small but tangible ways to get involved, different organizations, different community groups, even just having conversations with, you know, people who might have a different perspective and opinion than yours, but trying to find that common ground. And when we have a common ground, uh, I think we're always in a better position to move forward on change and to make a difference. So so don't don't be disheartened, don't be discouraged, just focus on looking ahead, looking to the future and how we can all make it better.
0: That's very useful. Thanks, Brad. You've provided listeners with many useful and inspiring insights. Good luck with your election campaign. I can't think of anyone who would make a better city councillor. Thanks, Craig. It's been a slice. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website. Until next time, thank you for listening.